I remember covering the 2000 election for George W. Bush, then governor of the state of Texas. And there was still a, a Texas identity then, this sense of uh, you know independence, this is how we do it in Texas, this is the model that works here, and then the war in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan after 9-11. And that has really just sent Texans into one side or the other. That's Jason Whiteley of WFAA Dallas and co-host of the podcast Yolitics. He kicked off our Purple Principles series on Texas identity amidst ever more passionate red versus blue politics nationwide. His feeling is yes, even that distinctive Texas identity has eroded in recent time. But Dan Goodgame sees things differently. He's editor-in-chief of the widely read and respected Texas Monthly. The identity that Texans hold as Texans is stronger than in any other state. And if you ask someone who grew up in Lubbock whether she identifies as, you know, first as a Republican or as a Texan, she'll say Texan. And a Democrat from San Antonio will say the same. This is Robert Pease, and you're listening to The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. In this Texas series finale, you'll hear a range of views on identity with regard to the vast, varied, and vocal Lone Star State the only U.S. state that was a nation and continues to maintain iconic status in American culture. In music, for example, it'd be difficult to name another state that's contributed so many enduring musicians across so many genres. Such as the distinctly Texas blues of T-Bone Walker as far back as the 1920s and 30s. They call it Stormy Monday. The country songs with Western influence of Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, beginning in the 1950s. Out in Lukenbach, Texas, ain't nobody feeling no pain. And however you classify Janis Joplin, among others, in the 1960s. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That distinctly Texas sound continues to resonate today in the music of Gary Clark Jr. And Leon Bridges with Krungbin. Texas, son. Texas also has an outsized presence in American literature, such as the great novel of our guest Stephen Harrigan, The Gates of the Alamo, the many classic works of fiction by Larry McMurtry, such as The Last Picture Show and Lonesome Dove, as well as a lengthy list of classic films and TV shows such as the long-running Dallas. Who shot J.R.? Everybody around the world wanted to know who shot J.R. Academy Award-winning Apollo 13. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Dallas Buyers Club starring native Texan Matthew McConaughey. As I said, they're not for sale, nor are they illegal. Merely unapproved and the popular book, film, and TV series, Friday Night Lights. Here's to God, in football, in 10 years from now, Street, good friends living large in Texas. Texas forever, Street. Texas forever. Even if not yet eternal, everything is bigger in Texas and influential. The state has spawned post-war presidents from both parties in LBJ and the two George Bushes, and many other national leaders. In fact, New Yorker staff writer and author Lawrence Wright, he felt our question on national politics influencing Texas should really be flipped around. Texas is taking over the country. 
And, uh, you know, the politics have been spilling out of Texas for a long time. So whatever happens in Texas is the future of America. We better get educated on Texas. To do that, we'll briefly highlight major insights from interviews in each of our six episodes, starting with episode one, Messing with that Texas Identity. Our guests are Dallas-based co-hosts of Yolitics, Jason Whiteley, and coming up first, Jason Wheeler. He's speaking to the top-down, micromanaging nature of the GOP government in the state capital of Austin. Oh, they're they're going nuts about it right now. Local control, and you're going to hear that phrase over and over and over again. Republicans at the state level, the leadership has done somewhat of an about face on that, especially here during the pandemic. And uh, Governor Abbott ran afoul of a lot of people in his own party because he, you know, issued this uh, mask mandate statewide and shut down early on in the uh, pandemic. And now you see the flip side of it. He's not making anybody happy because now he's got an order out there saying that at the local level, you cannot uh, mandate masks as a local governmental entity. What about the state legislature then? After two decades in power, are there any Republican members more open to negotiation and compromise? Yeah, I think the Speaker of the House, probably like most states, the Speaker of the State House in Texas is elected not by the public at large to become Speaker of the House, but rather by the members of the body. That being said, you know, it's almost window dressing in a way because, you know, Democrats will tell you that on policy, though, this last legislative session gave a lot of red meat to the conservative base here in Texas. Uh, You know, this uh, the abortion law that probably so many people across the country are familiar with now also open carry without a license or training. And that's the Trump effect. That's clearly the Trump effect because the base has moved that way. Open carry. You know, Texas has been a a Republican state for almost 20 years in the legislature. And then as the Republican base, the voters have moved farther and farther and farther right, they finally came around to it thinking, if I want to get reelected, I got to put some points on the board and I've got to pass something like open carry. I've got to pass these things. And it's sailed through the Republican side after after session after session, every two years of it failing, failing, and failing. So here's the two-party Texas report card thus far. The long-dominant GOP plays to its primary voting base and passes legislation not widely popular throughout the state. But the opposition Democratic Party remains weak in the polling and at the polls. Does that open opportunities for centrist independent candidates? Independent or unaffiliated voters in Texas do make up 20% of the electorate. But the answer to that question was a definitive no from all of our experts. Without a party structure, in their view, you just can't make headway in a state as big as Texas. So for this finale, we went to Linda Curtis, co-founder of the League of Independent Voters of Texas, on this particular question. She feels independent and third-party candidates might gain some traction on these issues of local control and also the tragic 2021 failure of the Texas power grid. It's one party rule that is calcifying and this will lead to a pushback from these local communities because they're getting starved by all the cronyism and corruption that is being done by the henchmen of our state officials who let the grid go down a year ago and still have not done an adequate investigation It is so outrageous what is going on here. Loss of local control, a catastrophic power outage, 
Yet most pollsters do not see Texas turning even a bit more purple, let alone blue, anytime soon. In our second episode, Texas Monthly Editor-in-Chief Dan Goodgame offers this explanation for the one-party state of things. Yeah, you know, I draw a distinction between the polarization of Texans writ large and Texas politics, because Texas politics, as you note, is, you know, very polarized. And and a lot of that is just structural. I mean, I'm going to read a short series of numbers to you and let you guess what they represent. 29, 22, 16, 4, 2, and 1. Uh, contested seats. Nope. 29 is 29 million is the population in Texas right now. 22 million is the number of people who are eligible to vote. 16 million is the number who actually register to vote. 4 million is the number who vote in primaries in Texas. 2 million is the number who vote in the Republican primary in Texas. 1 million is all it takes to win. So that's 3.3% of the population is deciding who the statewide office holders are in Texas. And for the last 27 years, that's how long it's been since a Democrat won statewide office in Texas. And, you know, a big part of why it works that way is, frankly, the ineffectiveness of the Democratic Party in Texas. There's, you know, people who don't like Republican policies are, you know, very quick, of course, to place all the blame there. But Democrats here similarly play to their base rather than to centrists. And so they let the party get identified with issues that are just toxic in Texas. I mean, defunding the police, opening the borders, abolishing the border patrol in which thousands of Texas Latinos serve, abolishing the oil and gas industry, abolishing private health insurance, seizing semi-automatic rifles. This is not a winning platform in Texas. Dan Goodgame is a former White House correspondent for Time magazine. We carry Dan's distinction between Texas politics and society with us into our third episode, Growth, Diversity, and One-Party Politics. My guests were two researchers from the nonprofit group More in Common. They've done a hugely ambitious study of Texas identity. You can find it online. It's called Threads of Texas. In our interview, co-author Paul Oshinsky told me about seven distinct political identities in the state. Turns out 14% of far-left Texans feel like they don't belong there at all. He calls them Lone Star progressives. Here's Paul. Texas, at least in the past 20 or so years, has been known as a deeply red and conservative state. And so Lone Star progressives have this sentiment of alienation in Texas. Then there's a group in the center, which he calls apolitical providers. This group of all the other segments in Texas are least likely to engage in political activities. They're just less interested in politics. They're also most likely to worry about being left behind. And then to the far right are heritage defenders, which sounded to me a lot like far right populists found throughout the country. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. They're a lot less optimistic, um, especially if you compare them to, you know, those conservative reverent Texans or diehard Texan groups. Um, But one of their uh, key uh, components is their strong undercurrent of skepticism of the government. All of which is distinctly Texan and not unlike our national politics, where the extremes are highly engaged and the moderate center, or what more in common calls the exhausted majority, is drowned out of the national dialogue. We also spoke to Dr. James Henson of the Texas Politics Project at UT Austin in the same episode. His group has been conducting some of the most comprehensive polling on Texas voters for nearly two decades. 
you know, the question you ask in the overall sense of essentially was the Republican agenda that was passed and signed by the governor in 2021 a bridge too far for a general election in 2022? The law creates a unique challenge to women's access to abortion services. Still, the new law bans drive-through voting and 24-hour polling locations. Texans 21 years and older who are allowed to own a handgun will no longer need a license to carry it. This is legislation that is promoted by Republican legislators who do not want primary challengers from the right and are not afraid of the general election electorate or, you know, at the very least are willing to face that problem when they have to. I mean, I think as we look at polling and we look at the electoral environment, I don't expect that this is going to work to Democrats' advantage extensively. You're listening to our Texas miniseries finale. No serious discussion of Texas is complete without attention to Hispanic or Tejano identity, meaning Texans of Mexican descent. Texas is at least 40% Hispanic statewide and majority Hispanic in the South Texas region that shares a long border with Mexico. We met with two experts from that region, including former four-term San Antonio Mayor Henry Cisneros in episode four. We asked Dr. Cisneros, how much have things changed since his breakthrough 1981 election as one of the very first Hispanic mayors of a major American city. We've made an immense amount of progress, and I see it in the access to economic opportunity, in the breaking down of segregated housing patterns where people can live in any neighborhood that they choose. I see it in the distribution of leadership, where we have uh, Hispanics running some of the major institutions of the community. So a lot, a lot of progress. There's a great disconnect between the kind of consensus building we have created in San Antonio and what we're seeing in the state at large, which is uh, seeming uh, roll back the clock and draw some old divisions, which I think are not productive. But despite those divisions in Texas, both in South Texas and statewide, the GOP has been gaining traction with Hispanic voters in recent elections. We asked Dr. Cisneros, a centrist Democrat, why that might be the case. If you were a young Hispanic in business and you wanted to progress in your community, you're going to relate to the people who are in power. And if all the appointments at the state level to serve on boards and commissions, if all of the uh, invitations to you as a member of a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce are to be with like-minded business people, and they're all Republicans, then at some point you say to yourself, well, maybe that's where I should be if I want to advance. And that is an immense advantage of controlling all of the levers of power. And the Republicans for 20 years have controlled not only every office, but I was told the other day that there's every single appointment to any body in Texas is now 100% appointed by Republican officials. In addition to business owners, the Texas GOP is also attracting ambitious young Hispanics as political candidates, many of them Latinas. Sharon Navarro is a professor of political science at UT San Antonio. She's written extensively about Latina candidates and elected officials from both parties. 
You know, when I hear discussions about, you know, is this new to the Democratic Party, these sort of changes have been taking place for quite some time. It's just that the Democratic Party hasn't been listening to these changes. And while there are a higher propensity of male Latino voters to vote for the Republican Party, there is also uh, some Latinas who are returning or, or turning to the Republican Party because they see the systemic dominance of the Democratic Party in southern Texas. Uh, these candidates have been there for quite some time, and then when they decide to retire, there is already a male heir apparent. And so these Latinas are looking for an opportunity, and the Republican Party has been listening. South Texas is also the region on the very front lines of U.S. immigration, a complex issue demanding serious bipartisan attention, but it's been gridlocked in Washington for decades. In episode six, we spoke with former three-term South Texas Congressman Will Hurd about sensible immigration reform, among other ideas for getting big things done, detailed in his new book, American Reboot. Look, immigration is an important issue. This is something I spent a lot of time on when I was in Congress, and it's, it's why it's one of the longest chapters in the book. We benefit. Like, look, look at the place we are right now. We have a real crisis on our southern border. The amount of illegal immigration, the amount of, of drugs that are coming into our country is the highest it's ever been. When you look at every industry needs workers, every industry is looking to hire. Guess what? You know, streamlining legal immigration would help with that problem. If Florida needs agriculture workers and Texas needs hospitality workers, that should be based off of a need. The technology exists to do this, and then we can increase the number of those kinds of working visas, you know, based on that need in that particular location, that particular state. It's that simple. We also spoke to Will Hurd about our central question in this series, the strength of that proud yet neighborly yet independent Texas identity. We noted that in recent primaries, many Texas GOP candidates were jockeying for Trump's endorsement, while some Texas Democrats were looking for AOC's endorsement or PAC money. But is that a traditionally Texas thing to do? No, it is not. It is not a Texas thing to do. We're used to being independent and doing our thing, right? Do it our way. And so, look, if I were to try to dissect this, I would say a lot of elected officials are lazy, and they want to talk to or get the support of the person that has the biggest kind of partisans in their party. Okay. And so Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has a very vocal, big following, and Donald Trump does as well, too. So people appeal to that. But what I have found, and this is how a Black Republican can win in a 71% Latino district, is that... People want to be inspired by something bigger than themselves. And we forget that. It's hard to, to inspire. It's easy to fear monger. But if we get back to the basics, we get back to our values of freedom leads to opportunity. Opportunity leads to growth. Growth leads to progress, right? Like, we're going to be successful. And to me, that's why I titled the book American Reboot. And I do believe Texas has an opportunity to lead the way. If Texas does lead the way, many of our guests hope Will Hurd is involved in that effort. They spoke highly of his can-do attitude with the hope that Hurd will run again for public office. 
That includes the noted authors Lawrence Wright and Stephen Harrigan, featured guests in our Texas Episode 5. Wright published the recent memoir, God Save Texas. His friend, neighbor, and occasional collaborator, Stephen Harrigan, is the author of Big Wonderful Thing, A History of Texas. Well, I said in the book, there's a, uh, on Interstate 45 in Huntsville, there is a 67-foot-high statue of Sam Houston that you, you definitely can't miss. And I make the point that it's not out of scale. He has a towering presence in Texas history. I would argue probably he and Lyndon Johnson are the two most significant Texans in that sense. And, you know, Houston was the former governor of Tennessee, who left the state under strange circumstances, to say the least, when his <laughs> yeah. wife abruptly uh, ended their marriage. And he ended up living among the Cherokees and being called by them big drunk. <laughs> he sort of resuscitated his career by coming to Texas as a protege of Andrew Jackson, ended up winning the battle of or leading the Texian forces that won the Battle of San Jacinto in April of 1836, which made it possible for Texas to gain its independence from Mexico. He was the president of an independent republic. He was the governor of a subsequent state. He was the senator from that state. He lost his governorship because he refused to sign the oath, you know, declaring for the Confederacy. And so he's had this umbrella-like effect over much of Texas history. And though he's a complicated character with all sorts of shading, as all historical characters are, he's much revered today still in the state. And every Texas governor in his or her heart still believes that they're the reincarnation of Sam Houston. (laughs) It's not true, but (laughs) they don't live up to that, I have to say. Uh, In addition to looking back on influential Texans, Wright and Harrigan also look ahead to how Texas is changing, with large numbers of Americans moving to Texas for mainly economic reasons. That includes citizens and sometimes whole companies from the great blue state of California. You know, it's stunning to me with all the people moving to Texas that our unemployment rate stays so low. And that's because jobs are being created faster than people are moving here. And a lot of those jobs are, you know, immigrants from California. There's no question about it. We see their logos all on buildings downtown. And you could see the the physical representation of that migration is very evident to everyone in Texas. I was talking to an entrepreneur who, one of the tech guys who's moved from the Bay Area and a very successful Silicon Valley uh, creator and He said, you know, we failed California. We failed San Francisco. And I just hope we don't do the same thing in Texas. I think the the phrase, don't California my Texas, is part of that rear guard action of defending the Texas identity. At the root of it, I guess, is a fear from Governor Abbott and others that Texas will just become another place, that it won't be unique. It won't have this colossal, uh, you know, self-identity. And so California, in their mind, is, you know, who knows what it is, but it's almost an, uh, an arch enemy of the Texas identity. The idea, you know, Texas and California have always had a kind of seesaw relationship. 
And it's fascinating, you know, that we live in a country where you have two states that are so different politically and yet so fluid that, you know, they're constantly in flux. Eventually, California will become more conservative, I'm convinced, and Texas will become more liberal. For the moment, though, the color of true political power in Texas remains bright red. While California remains deep blue, with neither state exhibiting much in the way of a less polarizing purple. We'll be discussing the seesaw relationship between our two most popular states when we visit California in an upcoming miniseries. Will Texas politics and policy remain dominated by a small percentage of GOP primary voters and candidates? Or will the upcoming general elections contain a few surprises? Will Texas infrastructure, including energy, roads, and housing, keep up with the current rate of rapid growth? Or will the bloom eventually come off the Texas rose? We're leaving the Lone Star State with those questions in mind. Other state visits lie ahead as the 2022 primaries continue. First, though, we need a refresher course on real dialogue in our polarized age. Monica Guzman is digital director at Braver Angels, a group that facilitates cross-partisan conversation nationwide. Her new book is, I Never Thought of It That Way. Yes, so right after the 2016 election, people in Seattle were pretty stunned. This is a very democratic city, very blue-leaning city. And November 9th, 2016, everything felt dead. After that, a lot of the conversations that I'd be a part of at networking events or dinners with friends invariably turned to politics. And so (laughs) I would say, well, my parents are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump. And that stopped conversation. And then I would wait and see if someone might, instead of walking away or changing the subject, turn to me and ask, why? Why did your parents vote for Trump? Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss that conversation. And look us up on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions, where you'll get exclusive access to monthly bonus content from The Purple Principle. I want to thank all of our great guests in our Texas series for shedding light on the Lone Star identity, an important but complex and dynamic topic. And special thanks to Texas influence composer Ryan Adair Rooney for the original scoring throughout the series. If you've been following these Texas episodes, how did you discover us? Please click the link at the top of our show notes to let us know. It will really help us out. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.